0: Advent, the season of anticipation marked by the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And this year, we have been reading through the New Testament together as a church, as a fellowship of the Spirit's sword, and preaching from those texts. And our reading plan has brought us to Revelation through the weeks of Advent, which might sound strange, but it is actually very fortunate because Advent has historically not only been a reflection on the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, but also a time of longing and waiting for the second Advent, the second coming of Christ. Because these two things, the first and second Advent, are integrally connected. The second Advent is inevitable and imminent now that the first coming of Jesus has happened. And so we will continue preaching through our reading plan, through Revelation, during this season of Advent. And we're calling this series of messages Advent Revealed. And this, this unity uh, of reading and preaching and partnership in it has been such a blessing to us that we are going to do something similar next year. In 2024, we will unite our church-wide scripture reading and our preaching calendar once again, but this time we'll read through the Old Testament. And, and make it even more interesting, we're going to read through it chronologically. And uh, so this will be a bit more uh, than what we've been doing this year, more reading, uh, but it will be good for us to encounter the whole counsel of God's Word. And we're naming the reading plan Honey, Hammer, and Hope from three Old Testament images for the Word of God. The Psalms say, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jeremiah says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Another passage in the Psalms says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. God's word is sweet and strong and saving. And you'll be able to find the plan on our website and we'll have a printed version as well soon. So please join, plan to join us in this, this next year. Now back to Advent Revealed because over these four Sundays, these next four Sundays, including this one, leading up to Christmas, we will be reflecting on the Advent themes of hope and peace, joy and love, and, which are fulfilled in Jesus. And we'll be doing that through this wonderful revelation And dwelling on the second advent of Christ in light of the first. And so turn to Revelation 1 with me. And we'll be reading verses 12 through 18. And as I read, I think we have a picture uh, to put on the screen of a piece of artwork painted by Corey Frerichs. Uh, she's one of our own paintings, uh, one of the, uh, these paintings for each of these four Sundays of Advent throughout this series, uh, inspired by these texts in Revelation. And she's done a beautiful job. So look and listen as I read Revelation 1, 12 through 18. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. So there's this really cool ministry project uh, called Verses that Audrey and I stumbled upon like a year and a half ago on Spotify, and I have since become obsessed with it. And they gather these gifted musicians to make Bible verses into songs, not elaborating or altering, which is a good thing. I've I've done that myself, but just using the actual words of scripture and putting melody to them as a way of meditating and memorizing. And most of them uh, are really awesome. And they're done artfully and reverently. And I've been so blessed as they help me really meditate on God's word. And so I listen to them in the car sometimes with the kids. And one of Evergreen's favorites is called the keys of death. Well, that's what she calls it, the keys of death. And it's from this text we are reflecting on this morning, Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And it has this great buildup in the song where there's this awesome part where we're singing at the top of our lungs, I have the keys of death. And we listen to it about once a week, and it's one of the highlights of my week to hear my little five-year-old yell singing, I have the keys of death. And it's it's just just the other day, she had a headache in, in the car, and she said, Daddy, if you want to sing the keys of death, you can, but just sing it medium loud so you don't make my headache worse. And it, and it's it's, a, it's an awesome truth that this verse says, and I've been blessed by meditating on it regularly. It's a, this text is beautiful and hope building to see and know who our Christ is and what he's capable of. He is the living one, as he calls himself here. And as we reflect on the hope of Christmas, the hope offered by this first advent is tied up with the hope of the second advent, that because he came, he is coming again. The song, uh, Pastor Andrew has been leading us in singing lately. We sang it last week. We'll sing it again today, uh, this morning, that the song says to Jesus, you keep hope alive. Why? Because you are alive. And that's exactly right. Jesus' own never-ending, unconquerable life is the foundation of our hope. And so when John falls down as though dead before him, how does Jesus comfort him and encourage him? He lays his right hand on him and he says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is the great comfort to the people of God. Our Lord lives forevermore. He is the living one. His life is our hope. I was listening to another one of those verses songs recently from Lamentations 3, 24, and it says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And as I was singing it, I thought, I don't think I really know what that means, that he's my portion. And so I looked it up and it means his inheritance, like his portion of the estate, meaning what he's looking forward to getting. Like in Lion King, when Mufasa takes Simba up to that high cliff and he's overlooking the plains and he says, everything the light touches will be yours one day. The sunlit lands are his portion. And Jeremiah's soul in Lamentations reflects on the hope that the Lord is his portion. He says, therefore, I will hope in him. The substance of his hope is the Lord himself. This is what I want us to see this morning. That Jesus himself is our hope. We anticipate a great many things in our future as Christians, but none so great as the enduring presence of the living one among us. And what's really cool about the way Jesus revealed himself to John at the beginning here of Revelation is how intentional every element is. I didn't notice this until until, uh, just two weeks ago, how John described Jesus in this passage that we read wasn't just what he looked like, and, and, and each aspect of how he appeared and, and how he described himself is something Jesus intentionally revealed because it was something that each of these churches needed to see and hear and know in order to be reproved and rebuked and exhorted, as Pastor Drew ta- taught on last week. So in, this, in these next two chapters of Revelation, John addresses these seven churches that Jesus is wants him to write this to. And before each of those addresses to one of the churches, he is told to point out one of these descriptors of Jesus from chapter 1, when John beheld Jesus in his glory. For instance, when he addresses the church in Thyatira, he's told to say that this rebuke comes from the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire right? That's how John saw him. And then when he addresses the church in Pergamum, who were also tolerating heresy and leading, which led to idolatry and sensuality, they needed to hear from one who has the sharp two-edged sword, he says. And when he addresses the church in Smyrna, who were about to face tribulation and trial and were called to be faithful unto death, they needed to hear from one who had died and come to life. And I hope you can see how each of these is drawn from that initial vision right, of Christ that we read from Revelation 1. Each element of Christ's glory is something that his people need to behold in order to continue in the way. This is an incredible expression of one of the key truths of Christianity, that that we must behold the glory of Christ as the means of our being kept and being changed. And that if we wish to stay on track We must obey the proverb from chapter four of, of Proverbs that says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. And what are we gazing at when we look directly forward? We're looking to the glory of our risen Christ. In Revelation, he is reorienting these seven churches on himself. They need to see him. And know him for who he really is. They need to feel and experience and believe certain things about him. And, and they need to hope in him. As Jeremiah did in Lamentations. Each address to the seven churches in Revelation begins with one characteristic. One of those characteristics of Christ. That he revealed to John when he first came to him on this island of Patmos. And then each of those addresses ends with a promise of hope. He's reproving, rebuking, exhorting them with hope and with his glory, which are very much united. And so now that I've seen this, i seen exactly what Christ intended when he revealed himself like this to John. I, I feel compelled to let the following two chapters serve as the exposition of this passage. And so maybe you will fall into one of these categories or maybe more than one. And this revelation of Christ will challenge you or convict you or encourage you this morning. So let's just go through it and and we'll start with with the church of Ephesus. When John first turns and sees Christ, he sees him among lampstands, which Corey beautifully painted in her first of that series of paintings she's doing for this Advent series. And Jesus tells us that these lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is present among his church. Not looking down from far away, he's in the midst of them. Christ is with us. This is one of the incredible truths that we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? Emmanuel, Christ with us. He is not distant. He is tending the lamps, the churches. He is addressing these seven churches with this letter. And so there's seven lamps, but we too are a lamp. Because we are his church, lit with the flame of his spirit, shining his light and his truth and love. And he is among us, eager to see us burn brightly. And the kind of people who most needed to see this truth were that church in Ephesus. They were the kind of people who had forgotten their first love and drifted from how they used to serve the Lord. And so he calls this church to remember from where they had fallen. Maybe this is you. You are enduring, which he says of them, but you're not where you used to be. The love that once filled you and burned within you is all but a distant memory. You need to see the Lord walking among the lampstands. You need Christmas more than most. You need to behold Emmanuel, Christ with us, longing for our lamp to burn brightly. Isaiah tells us a smoldering wick he will not extinguish, but that doesn't mean he's content to watch it smolder. He wants to see it catch flame once again and burn brightly. And so behold the Lord among the lamp. And as John beheld the son of man among the lamps, he sees him clothed as a king and looking ancient and wise with pure white hair. But though he is old, he is not worn and weary or dull and tired. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Jesus's eyes are passionate and powerful. The church at Thyatira is a church that he wants to know this because it's a church that's acting as though he doesn't see what they are doing. He tells them that he wants them to know, I am he who searches mind and heart. They are not like the previous church I just mentioned in Ephesus. They are actually doing greater works than they did before, than they used to, but they are tolerating false prophecy, which is leading some into idolatrous practices and sexual immorality. And this may be you, passionate for the cause of Christ, and in your pursuit of Christ and His gospel, you become too tolerant of adultery and immorality, because you long in compassion to see people come to faith. I've seen it many times. I've myself have been tempted towards it, that in our passion for Jesus and for people to know His grace, we become soft towards sin as though it's not a cancer of the soul. We need to see Jesus's eyes, which burn with passion also, but with also hatred towards sin and falsehood. We need to know the power of his eyes that he sees us down to the core. We need to see his feet gleaming and stable like burnished bronze, sturdy. He is a sure and steady anchor for our soul. And after John notices his eyes and his feet, he hears his voice roar like many waters and sees within his right hand seven stars. Jesus later tells John that these stars are angels. And the word in Greek, anglos, uh, it just means messengers, So whether spiritual messengers or human preachers they, or both, they are sent by him to these seven churches and he holds them. This revelation is needed by the church of Sardis. Christ's message of hope to this church is that if they remember and repent, he will confess their names before God and his angels. And what is Sardis like? Well, they have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. And Jesus tells them to wake up and strengthen what little remains and is about to die. Because he's found their works incomplete. And some of you are like Sardis, sleepwalking. You put up a front, a facade of spiritual vitality, but you are really decaying spiritually. You're asleep and you need to wake up. You need to see spiritual reality, that Jesus holds his messengers in his hands, that he is the commander of angels. Like when the prophet Elisha, you remember when his servant was fearful of that Syrian army And you remember that story? And Elisha prayed for his servant to see what he could see. And God opened his servant's eyes to see the mountain full of God's flaming warriors on their side. That reality was more real, more definitive, even when he couldn't see it. You need to wake up and strengthen what little spiritual muscles you have left that are not atrophied. And realize that we're not just playing religious games, not just going through the motions to keep up that reputation you think you have of being an upstanding Christian. You need to see Christ with his angelic stars in his hand. Maybe this Christmas, let that star that led the wise men wake you up to this reality. And then what John makes note of next is not only did a roaring waterfall of a voice come from Jesus's mouth, but also a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus explicitly warns the church of Pergamum about this sword, that he will war against the false teachers among them with the sword of his mouth. For they had a faction of falsehood among them that put stumbling blocks in the path of others. And it is these people that he says he will wage war with, but though he says he's going to wage war uh, with the people who are propagating these lies, he calls the whole church to repent. They are responsible for one another, in other words. We are not as isolated as individuals as we tend to think we are. We belong to one another. They They were responsible for one another. Those who are firm in the truth should obey that passage that serves as our call to worship, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And that's exactly what this church needs to see. The sword coming from Jesus's mouth. It is the sword of the spirit, right? We've been a fellowship of the spirit sword. It's the word of God. Christ's very words are a weapon with divine power to destroy strongholds, as 2 Corinthians 10 tells us. And in a world full of lies that the devil works to form into stumbling blocks for the children of God, we must behold our Lord with a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. We should be humbled before the word of God in wonder like we are before a mighty waterfall. Like that's what John experienced when he said Jesus' voice was like the roar of many waters. When we open the word or attend worship, we are encountering something massive and powerful and even dangerous. We must see those who play fast and loose with it and those who ignore it and snub it, its truth, we should see them as in danger. Those who claim to lay hold of it and yet live contrary to to its precepts and principles, are grabbing hold of the wrong end, the sharp end, and will be cut down. And we ought to strive with all our heart to be on the handle side of that sword and be found with the one who wields it. We need to behold this glorious vision of our Lord with his face shining like the sun in full strength, that's the stunning image that finally drops John down as though dead. Jesus, glory overwhelms him. And this is something we see in the, from time to time throughout the Bible, don't we? That genuine intimacy with God comes through trembling and, and being overwhelmed and humbled and even devastated. And I love how Jesus responds to his fearful, shrinking disciple, John. He, it says he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. And then the rest of the passage describes Jesus's revelation of himself to John. It's not just what what John sees about Jesus, but what Jesus tells him about himself. And the first thing he tells John is, I am the first and the last And this is a very interesting revelation because Christ applies applies this truth both to the worst church and to one of the best churches, which tells me this serves as both a comforting encouragement and a challenging confrontation, depending who you are. To give a little context to what I'm saying, you need to see the big picture of the state of these seven churches. So all the churches, all but one, receive some commendation, some well done as well as the criticism. And I find that encouraging. You should too, that even when we are off track, God still sees and receives and recognizes the aspects of our life and our faith that are pleasing to him while still calling us back to repentance. But there are two of these seven churches who only receive commendation and no criticism. All only good, no bad. And and one of those churches he applies this truth to. And then there's only one of these seven churches who receives criticism alone and no commendation, no good to say about them, only bad. That church is Laodicea. And this church is a church that says, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, poor, blind and naked. They're the ones you probably have heard of who are lukewarm, not hot or cold and are to be spit out. Their prosperity in worldly terms has blinded them to their great spiritual need. They've been puffed up with pride and it has made them disgusting to God. They need to see Christ as the beginning of all things They need to see his priority and his primacy, his bigness, his eternality. In other words, they need a picture of Christ that makes them look small. And this is why Christ chooses this aspect of himself to address to his most wayward church and to comfort his humbled disciple John and comfort a faithful church. The same truth to all three of those people. Because to the proud and prosperous, the transcendence of Christ comes as a wake-up call and a rebuke. But to the humble and the hurting, it comes as a comfort to know the bigness of your God. From someone so great, the invitation is the same to both kinds of people. But to one, it's harder to hear. And to the other, it's a relief, a joy. So what's the invitation? Listen to what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea. I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is saying, I am richer than you. You need to be coming to me to meet your needs. I have what you need. My riches are better than your riches. And and that will mean that you rely less on what you have accumulated for yourself. You must love less your own wealth because it is lulling you into a state of lukewarmness. Your obsession with earthly prosperity is making you bland and boring and stale and icky. You need to see Jesus as the first and the last, the beginning of all things. Be humble before him and he will lay his right hand on you and say, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And that's the next thing that he says to John. I am the living one. And I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. This is how Jesus introduces himself. This is how he wants to be known by us. And, and these next two revelations are attributes that we will talk about. Christ applies to those two churches I told you about who didn't receive any criticism. They received his commendation, his encouragement, and they too need to see Christ as he revealed himself and be kept by this vision of his glory And in particular, the church in Smyrna is about to face intense difficulty. Let me read you the message to Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So you see them contrasted with Laodicea. They are poor, but they're really rich. Whereas Laodicea was rich, but they're really poor. And he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan and do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this faithful church is poor in the world's eyes, but rich in Christ's eyes. And they have been facing tribulation and being slandered by other religious people, which Christ calls the synagogue of Satan. What a great phrase. And, and, but then that is not the end of their trials. Christ says there's more to come, more trials in store for you. They're about to be thrown in prison. And Christ doesn't want them to be afraid. He wants them to remain faithful even unto death. And he promises them a crown of life. And so what does he say about himself to them? He begins his address to them by saying that he is the first and the last. And again, that same, no, it's it's striking. That's a similar message to this church that he's pleased with and to the church that he's displeased with. But then he adds something to this faithful church that's about to face tribulation and trials. He says to them, I died and came to life. Jesus is the one who faced death and came out on the other side. And if you are with him, you can face whatever this world can throw at you and come out on the other side, even death. If you are like this church, if you are slandered, if you are poor, if you are heading into a season of trial or been through trial and are facing more head, or mistreatment or loss or even death, you need to behold your Lord at the finish line with the crown of life. You need to see Jesus as the living one, the one who lives with abundant, unending, victorious life, the one who himself faced death and died. He too faced that wicked enemy and he came to life and he lives forevermore. He is your hope. He alone can sustain you in faithfulness to the end. It is a vision of this Christ as the living one that can make us say with the psalmist, what can flesh do to me? Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This kind of courage comes from hope in the one who died and behold is alive forevermore. Who promises us his crown of life when we overcome. And he not only died and came to life, but he holds the keys of death. That's the next thing Jesus says to John. He says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. And Hades is the place of the dead. Sometimes it's referred to as a place of torment, but most times it's referred to as general place of being dead, like the grave. Throughout Revelation, it's used in that second way. In other words, he's saying Jesus has not just overcome the event of death, but also the state of being dead. He can undo it. Because it has been undone through him. He has already unlocked that door and walked through it. That's what C.S. Lewis says of Christ's resurrection. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Jesus not only forced open that door, but he brought the keys with him. He he has the authority and power to unlock it. And Jesus picks up this image of him having keys and applies it to the church of Philadelphia, a church that he loves. He says to them, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They were not powerful or mighty, but they honored Christ well. And he says that they have kept his word about patient endurance, and therefore he will keep them from the hour of the trial that is coming. Now, this might strike at our sense of fairness in light of what we saw about the last church of Smyrna. Maybe I'm just spending too much time with kids who complain about things not being fair, but both Smyrna and Philadelphia were well-pleasing to Christ, but one of them is heading into an even greater trial. And one of them is being spared from a coming trial. Why the difference? And the only thing I can think to say is that it is his prerogative. As Pastor Tim said about another doctrine a couple weeks ago, it's above my pay grade. He's the one with the keys. Keys symbolize authority. Christ is the one who decides such things. And if it were up to anybody else, it might be a terrifying prospect, but knowing that the, our fate is in Christ's nail-pierced hands is good news. This is why he reaffirms them that he is the holy one, the true one, he says to this church. And Christ changes the keys that he's talking about slightly. He says he has the key of David, meaning the, of the kingdom which is portrayed in Revelation as the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, Christ is the only way in. Christ is the great opener and closer of doors, the doors of death and the doors of the new creation. And this is what these people of Philadelphia needed to know. He calls them to hold fast what you have so that No one may seize your crown. Hold fast. Know that your Lord who loves you is the one in charge. He has a plan for you. He will open the doors before you. And I am certain that you can relate to some degree or another with one or more of these churches. Whether you've forgotten the love that you had at first, like Ephesus or become too comfortable with immorality like Thyatira, or are sleepwalking with a facade of religiosity like Sardis, or have become amenable to lies like Pergamum, or have become proud in prosperity like Laodicea, or are on the precipice of fresh trials like Smyrna, or are of little power yet holding firm like Philadelphia. What you need is essentially the same. To look afresh at this Christ of ours. In his glory. In his victory. In his authority. In his presence among us. At his powerful truth. And his penetrating insight. At his promises. He holds himself out to you as your hope. You need him. He wants you. This week, I was listening to a bunch of different versions of Mary Did You Know with the kids uh, because it's that time of year and uh, it's one of the best Christmas songs in my opinion. And I know some people struggle with that rhetorical question posed to Mary since of course she did know some of it. Uh, But it is a powerful poetic device to reflect on the incredible contrast of kissing a little baby and kissing the face of God. I nearly come to tears at that point in the song which is saying something for me who's not as in touch with my emotions as like Pastor Tim is. Almost no song does so good at capturing just what really was going on at Christmas and reflecting on its incredible implications that this baby boy would one day rule the nations, that this baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb and the sleeping child Mary was holding is the great I am. The humility and majesty of Jesus held in unity is the glorious truth we reflect on at Christmas. But just as the first Advent, he shared our humanity. At the second Advent, we will share his glory. And this is the hope that unites the message to these seven churches. I was reminded of this as I listened to one of those versions of Mary, Did You Know? Because there's this one band called Maverick City Music who are phenomenal musicians, but they do this thing I don't really understand where they like to take the second half of the song and just like make up stuff and repeat it over and over again. And so I usually just skip that part of the song. And, but we were listening to their version of Mary, Did You Know? which was awesome, and Evergreen wanted to finish it. So I said, oh, okay, let's finish it. And so we listened through, and... I'm glad that we did because at the end, there was this beautiful refrain that said, glory is to come if you just hold on. Glory is to come if you just hold on. And I immediately thought of Christ's message to these seven churches because that is the message that unites them all. Hold on. There's hope. Hold on. There's hope even to Laodicea, the church that he had nothing good to say about it. He tells them he loves them and that's why he's rebuking them. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I told you he commends the other churches as well as rebuking them. So listen to those commendations really quick and see what they are like. See if you see this this thread running through them. To to Ephesus, he says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. To Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation. Do not fear, be faithful. To Pergamum, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. To Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. To Philadelphia, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Do you see it? He's commending them for holding on, holding firm, enduring, keeping, holding fast. He's saying, You have held on, and I'm giving you hope to keep holding on. Holding on to what? To him. We hold on to him because there's hope and hope of what? Of him coming to vindicate all who have held on to him. So this Advent, let's be reminded to hold on to him through hoping in him. There's glory to come as we just hold on. Let's pray. Our Holy Father We thank you for showing yourself to us, revealing yourself to us this Advent. We thank you for revealing yourself to these churches who needed to see this and that we get to peek in on this because we too are a church who needs to see your glory in specific ways to call us, to encourage us, to give us hope, to hold on. I pray that we remain faithful. I pray that we would repent in light of your goodness. I pray for each of each of us as we fall into these various categories of these different churches, that we too would see what we need to see about who you are and that you would call us back. We thank you for calling us to yourself, calling us to one another. And we thank you for the great hope we have in Jesus. We pray with him. Amen.